Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I'm Carl Stevens, I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And you may have noticed here, listeners, that we are actually changing the name of the show to A Priest and a Rabbi Explore Scripture, because we are close to finishing Exodus, and we will we'll be moving on to Luke and Acts, which means uh, our subtitle no longer makes sense. But I will now I... have... I thought that we were going to spend 40 years on Exodus. That's all right. It does feel like we have. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I, I, I'm going to have to get used to saying the new subtitle. So be patient with me. Be patient with me. But we have arrived here at 36, chapter 36. And I do want to just preface what this discussion by saying that our friend Robert Alter, the great Hebrew scholar and retranslator of many scriptures and commentator uh, says at the beginning of verse eight of this chapter that the text now launches upon one of its most extravagant, extravagant deployments of verbatim repetition. So that, that might give you a sense of what to expect today. This will be just, just an extravagant deployment of verbatim repetition. <laughs> In fact, in, in honor of that, we printed out a transcript of previous episodes. We will just be reading that. <laughs> oh, my God. That would be deadly. Deadly. Um, suffice it to say, this may be a pretty quick episode because if it's verbatim repetition, we may have touched on so many things before. Um, but let, let's, let me ask you just at the beginning here, Daniel, what, uh, what purpose does repetition serve Uh ritualistically and religiously and to our faith. So let me give you the, uh, uh, by the book answer first, and then maybe we can deconstruct it. But the, uh, uh, the classic Jewish answer to this, because of course we are not the first generation to notice that things are getting a little drawn out here. Uh, but the classic Jewish answer is that all repetition is purposeful, that there's not an extra, uh, jot or tittle, uh, in the entirety of the Torah text. And so anytime there is repetition, it becomes an opportunity for, uh, interpretation. And there's so many midrashim that we've looked at that actually emerge from that. Uh, and so many interpretations that emerge from that, you know, you end up paying attention to, uh, okay. In, in the previous chapter, they said it exactly the same way other than one word in that word then becomes the focus. Uh, which would all make sense, except of course, for the fact that by the time you get to this chapter, there is almost no interpretation and there is almost no commentary dealing with this chapter because everyone has already said everything they want to say. Uh, yeah. Even the rabbis are running out of steam at this even point. The rabbis, yeah. In the reading of Exodus. Um, do you have like a religious practice that involves repetition in some substantial and important way? I mean, like uh, chanting in the temple, is it repetitious? So, yeah, I mean, I, I think Jewish, I think Jewish services can feel highly repetitious sometimes. Um, no, I mean, right there, there is uh, the first repetition that comes to mind is that the Torah itself is repeated every year. We read the entirety of it over the course of a year, and then we start over again. We don't go on to different books in the Bible. We don't go on to post-biblical text. Uh, the cycle continues again and again and again. Yeah, yeah. Well, that we do the same. Well, not quite the same. We have a three-year lectionary that repeats, um, but it does not include every piece of the Bible, unfortunately. 
The Song of Songs in particular is woefully ignored. Yeah, the Song of Songs. Actually, there's it's kind of interesting. Art Scroll, which is the main publishing house for the ultra-Orthodox world. We're talking about uh, Jews, the black hatters, uh, the uh-huh. most sort of um, cordoned off of the Jewish communities. And in their translation of the Hebrew Bible, they don't translate Song of Songs. They instead translate an interpretation of Song of Songs that eliminates all of the eroticism. Really? And they don't even I tell am, you. They just drop it in as a translation. I am outraged. Outraged. Yeah, totally. Uh, I, d- I don't want to get off the topic of repetition that quickly, though. Um, because I I feel like... So we repeat things a lot. So sing psalms, for instance. There is a way... Uh, what I want to tell you, Daniel, is that we repeat things a lot. <laughs> um, and so, singing psalms. Uh, there is one way to sing psalms where you use antiphons. So you have a cantor singing the verses, and then the people respond with a half verse uh, re- that is repeated like every two verses. Uh, the, so there's repetition in the singing of psalms itself. Um But of course, also, we only have, Episcopalians only have four Eucharistic prayers to choose from if we're we're using the 1979 Book of Common Prayer. So there's a lot of repetition there. Uh, There's a lot of repetition in our prayer forms. Um, And, you know, one part of me uh, sometimes gets a little tired of that. Um, but another part of me thinks that there's a power in that. I, you and I briefly talked about clinical pastoral education, CPE last week, and you had a great transformative experience and I had a terrible experience. I think it's fair to say. Um, but one thing that helped me through it was repeating over and over again, uh, a Psalm as I kind of got into elevators and went to places where I was, you know, scared and, and having to deal with incredibly fraught emotions. Um, and and there's a power to that repetition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the piece of repetition that's occurring to me now is actually in Jewish music. One of the classical forms of Jewish music is called the Nigun, N-I-G-G-U-N. Um, uh-huh. And it is a song without words that is highly repetitive, usually has a a three-part structure, three different uh, uh, musical parts, each of them very easy and very singable. And you don't change the melody, but you will sing these nigoons sometimes for 10, 15, 20 minutes, the same melody over and over again. And what changes is what you bring to it upon each repetition. And, And it's, I mean, if anyone's ever experienced this, they can be incredibly powerful as these melodies build and build and build and then seem to die off and then are reborn. And, um, and there's something to that, right? That it's you that changes. Right. Right. Uh, to, to go on with that, I'm reminded of the story that I was told back in college about uh, the novelist Yale Doctorow and the poet James Wright, who were both students together at Kenyon, which is my own alma alma mater. 
And um, the story is that they were the kind of students who detested literary pretension in their classmates, like saw it everywhere, found it ridiculous, mocked it endlessly. And one day they were walking down Middle Path and uh, James Wright jumped into a pile of fallen leaves and it was autumn and he threw the bump in the air and he shouted, the leaves are falling, the leaves are falling, making fun of the pretentious poetry they'd just been hearing other students read in class. Um, years pass. James Wright has a difficult life, is an alcoholic, and he's dying. And the Yale doctor goes to visit him in his hospital room. And Yale Wright, or uh, I'm sorry, and James Wright can't speak. Maybe he's intubated. I can't remember why. Uh, but he gestures to Dr. O to bring him a pad of paper and on it, Wright writes down, the leaves are falling as he's dying. Um, and I've always loved that story because it, it is about repetition, right? It's about how the same words move from one context to another can deepen in meaning and, and utterly change. That's really beautiful. Uh, well, it's a good story. I like it. And, and I think that's something for us to remember. So it's, it's nice to imagine, you know, the rabbis coming to these same things again and again and again, and coming as different people each time with their context changed, reading them differently, understanding them differently. And I, I think anyone who studies scripture for a long time so we, we've got our mission statement then for digging into uh, our highly repetitious. What was uh, uh, Alter's phrasing here? It's, it was the most extravagant deployment <laughs> of verbatim repetition. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's dig in. Do you want to start reading? Uh, let them oh, Bitzalel and Ohaliav. Ohaliav? Yeah. Oholiav. Oholiav. Uh, and all, <laughs> at least we amuse ourselves and all the skilled persons whom the Lord has endowed with skill and ability to perform expertly all the tasks connected with the service of the sanctuary carry out all that the Lord has commanded Moses then called Bitzalel and Oholiab and every skilled person whom the Lord had endowed with skill everyone who excelled in ability to undertake the task and carry it out wow even those two verses basically sound like each other huh uh, they, they took sure over from Moses all the gifts that the Israelites had brought to carry out the tasks connected with the service of the sanctuary. But when these continued to bring free will offerings to him morning after morning, all the artisans who were engaged in the tasks of the sanctuary came, each from the task upon which he was engaged, and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than is needed for the tasks entailed in the work that the Lord has commanded to be done. Wow, he wasn't joking. The, the repetition is extravagant. We're not even to the extravagant part. It doesn't start to no, no, Kind of interesting, though, that we're about to get this repetition and that the precursor to the repetition has its own version of repetition where the same thing is being said twice over and over again. Verses 1 and 2 and then 4 and 5 have sort of the, the things backwards from each other. And, you know, um, Moses thereupon had this proclamation made throughout the camp. Let no man or woman make further effort towards gifts for the sanctuary so that people stop bringing. Yeah, and we had this whole idea two weeks ago. Yeah. Their efforts had been uh, more than enough for all the tasks to be done. Okay, but I think we do have a midrash about this, uh, which is rather nice, really. Um, 
but I'm still kind of pondering it in my heart. And it is the one that says, when so commanded, refraining from doing a mitzvah is no less a mitzvah than doing a mitzvah. So kind of a, a, a negative version of virtue. Yeah. When refraining from doing a mitzvah is no less a mitzvah than doing a mitzvah. So this is interesting, too, because mitzvah itself means commandment. So refraining, when you are commanded to refrain from fulfilling a commandment, you are fulfilling, you are fulfilling a commandment. A commandment. <laughs> uh, it's almost a Trumpian yeah, double negative, yeah. really. So Al-Sheikh, this is uh, uh, the author of it, is an interesting character, grows up in the Ottoman Empire. He is the descendant of... Uh, like like many Ottoman Jews, he is the descendant of Spaniards, Jewish Spaniards, who were exiled in the 15th century. Ultimately, in 1492 is the end of this, but there's a whole awful process. Uh, and these Jews become refugees throughout the port cities of northern Africa and southern Europe and make their way sort of all across these ports. And al-Sheikh eventually ends up in Sfat, uh, this mountain city in the north of Israel, uh, where a number of these refugees gather together as mystics and really come together and uh, create a new Jewish mysticism that emerges out of there. Well, that's interesting because that is something that mysticism is sometimes accused of. I'm uh, searching my mind for the exact theological term for it, and, and it's not coming right now. But this idea that um, spiritualities that emphasize a kind of be at peace with the universe, go with the flow view of life sometimes end up in a kind of passivity uh, which is problematic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that particularly plays into this mysticism because, you know, this is a mysticism that emerges out of generational trauma and basically a generational lack of agency within these families. Uh, I mean, we're, we're talking from yeah. the mid 1400s. Uh, the Al-Sheikh is about a hundred years after this, I think. Um, uh -huh. that we're talking about people who's you know, 150 years, something like that. Uh, we're talking about people who almost certainly were born in a different place than their parents were born, who were born in a different place than their parents were born, who were born in a different place than their parents were born. Um, and so right. there is this generational trauma, these ethnic cleansings after ethnic cleansings. Uh, and it leads, I think, to a retreat. There's my own judgment here uh, into mysticism which is a way of having power in a world that doesn't give you any power. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's a way of saying that power ultimately really doesn't matter very much. Uh, uh, okay. Um, do you know who John J. Muth is? I don't. Uh, have you ever read the early Neil Gaiman, Sam Mann comic books? I have. Love them. And you then you do know him because he was the, uh, the illustrator of them. Oh, okay. But he has a later career of writing children's books and, and illustrating children's books, which is really charming. And one of the books he wrote was called Zen Shorts, and it just takes these old Zen tales and, and you know, makes them for children, essentially. Uh, but one I remember really distinctly from it is this 
story about a man. Something happens where like uh, his horse runs away and all his neighbors are really, you know, they come to commiserate with him. And they're like, isn't it terrible? Your horse ran away. And he said, well, you know, maybe. And then the army comes and requisitions everybody else's horses and his horse wanders back after the army has left and, and everybody comes and says, aren't you happy that your horse came back? And he says, well, maybe. And it just goes on like that. His son like breaks his leg and that seems like a misfortune, but then he can't serve in the army. So it seems like a benefit. I'm probably massacring the story, but, but the point of the whole story is we never know what's going to happen, right? We don't know the thing that seems like misfortune to us is actually good fortune or the, if the thing that seems like good fortune is misfortune. And, and therefore, one possible attitude towards life is to simply just accept things as they come. So, um, but I know I'm saying this to a rabbi who just got arrested for protesting ice. So, you know. I, I would not be offended if you did not take that as your life disposition. <laughs> and neither, and I, frankly, I don't either. No, so. but it's an interesting notion, right? Um, yeah. Huh. I, you know, I'm thinking now there's a, a, probably the most important Orthodox rabbi of the last hundred years is a guy named Soloveitchik. So important that within the Orthodox world, he's just called the Rav, the rabbi. Mm. Uh, but Soloveitchik comes up with a theology really that he calls, um, heroic retreat. Mm. And what he's dealing with is the question of what happens when your own sense of right and wrong comes up against, uh, what the tradition says is right and wrong. And that sacrificing your own sense of, of right and wrong to the tradition sense, to Torah sense, is heroic retreat. So the, the example he gives is Abraham, uh, right? Abraham at the moment of the binding of Isaac is there ready to sacrifice everything for his God. That ultimately what he is sacrificing is not just his son, but his own sense of right and wrong. Um, so I, I emerge, my, my Jewish theology emerges out of a student of Soloveitchik's, David Hartman of a blessed memory, who totally rejects this. Uh, and he looks at me and he says, you got to be crazy if you read the Akedah, the Binding of Isaac story, and you think that what is being sacrificed is Abraham is sacrificing something. It's Isaac. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isaac is being abused and potentially murdered by his father. Right. Yeah. He's the one who's being sacrificed. It's not Abraham's sense. Um, and it's interesting because from this Soloveitchik teaching, there's all sorts of really problematic pieces that emerge, uh, right? Where uh, the rabbis really want to allow two men who love each other to get married, but they, they have to sacrifice their own sense of right and wrong for what the tradition says. And Hartman's critique would be, no, you're crazy if you think that what's being sacrificed is the rabbi's sense of right and wrong. What's being sacrificed is the life of these two human beings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that brings us to a, a, what I think is a, a paradox of religious faith, and one which we actually might approach to in, in a few minutes with another midrash. But it is this, that as long as we think we're in control and fighting and fighting and fighting, uh, we will never approach to God. Um, but 
here's the paradox. When we surrender control and admit that we're not in control and let God have God's way um, or let things just happen without getting too upset about them one way or another, we are then open to a sense of beauty and joy, which one might call grace, and that the proper response to that sense of grace is to go and try and multiply it in the lives of others. And sometimes that means helping to remove the conditions that are preventing them from experiencing that as well. So the paradox is that if you are like a down and dirty gutter fighter for justice who think that somehow you can make the world conform to your will, you're going to end up like a, a Robespierre or Mao or, you know, uh, just kind of doing more damage than, than good. Um, but if you can let go of that and say, I am not ultimately in control of this, but the one capacity I have is a great and unmitigated love for other people and for their condition, then you can actually do some good. So anyway, that's saying a lot, <laughs> but it is something to be struggled with. Um, and and um, th there is a midrash about grace uh, or something a little bit like grace that we're coming to, uh, but we're not coming to it yet. So should we get into the insane repetition? Let's get into the insane repetition. Okay. Do you want to start at verse eight? And when you get totally bored uh, and we need a change of voice so our listeners don't entirely fall asleep, do you want to just switch it over to me? Sure. I would love to start at verse eight. And when I get totally bored, <laughs> switch it over to you. Good repetition right there. <laughs> so what you, you should do is start at verse eight. And when you get totally bored, switch it over to me. <laughs> I feel like my five-year-olds would really approve of this episode. <laughs> Then all the skilled among those engaged in the work made the tabernacle of ten strips of cloth, which they made of fine twisted linen, blue, purple, and crimson yards. Into these they worked a design of uh, cherubim with angels. The length of each cloth was 28 cubits, and the width of each cloth was 4 cubits, all cloths having the same measurements. They joined five of the cloths to one another, and they joined the other five cloths to one another. They made loops of blue wool on the edge of the outermost cloth of one set and did the same on the edge of the outermost cloth of the other set. They made 50 loops on the one cloth and they made 50 loops on the edge of the end cloth of the other set and the loops being opposite one another. And they made 50 gold clasps and coupled the units to one another with the clasps so that the tabernacle became one whole. They made cloths of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle and they made the cloths 11 in number. The length of each cloth was 30 cubits, and the width of each cloth was 4 cubits, the 11 cloths having the same measurements. They joined five of the cloths by themselves, and the other six cloths by themselves. They made 50 loops on the edge of the outermost cloth of the one set, and they made 50 loops on the edge of the end cloth of the other set. They made 50 copper clasps. See, this is getting exciting. Copper this time. <laughs> to couple the tent together so that it might become one whole. And they made a covering of tanned ram skins for the tent and a covering of dolphin skins above. Uh, dolphin, by the way, that's that word that we sometimes see as dolphin and sometimes see as all sorts of other things because no one really knows what that word means. Uh, they made the planks for the tabernacle of acacia wood upright. The length of each plank was 10 cubits. The width of each plank, a cubit and a half. Each plank had two tenons parallel to each other. They did the same with all the planks of the tabernacle. 
Of the planks of the tabernacle, they made 20 planks for the south side, making 40 silver, hey, hey, sockets under the 20 planks, two sockets under one plank for its two tenons, and two sockets under each following plank for its two tenons. And for the other side wall of the tabernacle, lest you be confused and think we're talking about the first side, the north side, 20 planks, with their 40 silver sockets, two sockets under one plank and two sockets under each following plank. And for the rear of the tabernacle, to the west, they made six planks. And they made two planks for the corners of the tabernacle at the rear. They matched at the bottom, but terminated as one at the top into one ring. They did so with both of them at the two corners. Thus, there were eight planks with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two under each plank. They made bars of acacia wood, five for the plank of the one side of the wall of the tabernacle, five bars for the planks of the other side wall of the tabernacle, and five bars for the planks of the wall of the tabernacle at the rear to the west. They made the center bar to run halfway up the planks from end to end, and they overlaid the planks with gold and made their rings of gold, see we've gotten copper, gold, silver, as the holders for the bars, and they overlaid the bars with gold. They made the curtain of blue, purple, and crimson yarns and fine twisted linen, working it into a design of cherubim. Angels, in case you've forgotten over the last three minutes. They made it for four posts of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold with their hooks of gold. And they cast for them four silver sockets. They made the screen for the entrance of the tent of blue, purple, and crimson yarns and fine twisted linen done in embroidery and five posts for it with their hooks. They overlaid their tops and their bands with gold, but the five sockets were of copper. Dude, are you are you sure that wasn't your Torah portion? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> you said that with such great authority. I mean, that was truly an extravagant uh, reading extravagant. of verbatim repetition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> deeply extravagant. Uh, but, okay, here's my point of confusion. In one of our Midrash today, we have uh, we have the Midrash Tankuma talking about what Aaron did then. Uh, why did you include this? It, it, it doesn't seem to actually touch on this. Uh, hold on, I'm going back to where our... Here we go. Yes. What did Aaron do then? So the then here is... Uh, the then here is coming down from the mountain, uh, Mount Sinai at the giving of the Torah. We're talking back in uh, chapter 32. Uh, speaking of which, that was my Torah for portion that we're talking about here. So what did Aaron do then? Uh, this is while they're building the golden calf. He said, let the celebration be delayed until tomorrow. Right There's this tradition that says that Aaron did everything he could to avoid the golden calf. Uh, and Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast of the Lord. That's from Exodus 32. Whereupon the Holy Spirit called out, hasten, descend. They have forgotten what I did for them. The Holy One, blessed be God, said, in this world they have sinned because of the evil inclination within them. But in the time to come, I will remove it from them. As it is said, and this is verse 26 from our chapter, and I will take away the strong heart of your flesh. How is that verse 26 from our chapter? My verse 26 says 40 silver sockets, two sockets beneath the one board and two sockets beneath oh. the one board. Yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely <laughs> not here. It'll take away the strong heart of your flesh. Exodus 36, 26. I, yeah. Huh. huh. 
Uh, well, that that is a very deep yeah, reading of, yeah, of yeah, sockets beneath the board that they are the hearts of the flesh. Um, but but you know what, dear listeners, uh, I I want to go with it because you know there's so little to talk about right here, and I did promise you a brief disquisition on grace. Uh, yeah, so I'm looking right now. It's a someone messed up when they were marking it. It is definitely from 3626 in the book of Ezekiel. Ah, there we go. That makes so much more sense. So much more sense. Um, so here we are. We're in the we're in the middle of this building of the tabernacle, which people have been told to build, and now they're building it particularly extravagantly um, with perfection. And, uh, you know, as you were reading this through my mind, kept flashing this, the menu at this, uh, whiskey bar near here that had, had imitated an Ikea manual and its construction of drinks. Um, because this feels very like specific Ikea manually kind of thing. And, and being a terrible assembler of things, I would be the person who would get to verse 36 and I would fail to overlay the acacia posts with gold and the books of gold. And then I'd have to go back and start all over again. And I'd be really bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> but, but I do want to, to take advantage of our mistake, right? So, so maybe it was supposed to be Isaiah 36, 26. I don't care. I want to Ezekiel or Ezekiel. Yeah. That makes more sense. Uh, I want to briefly talk about, um, uh, a sense of grace because there is this kind of in the age to come thing that is being laid out in this, uh, in this mistaken midrash that we're looking at. Um, and I wonder for Jews, is there an age to come? Or I so, guess it's time to come. Maybe I'm reading age into it. Yeah, no, I, there are two concepts that you find in Judaism. Uh, and sometimes they mean the same thing. Sometimes in places they mean the same thing, and sometimes they're totally separate. One is this phrase, the world to come, or the age to come. Yeah. Uh, and the other is uh, what is sometimes translated as heaven, but the Hebrew for it is Gan Eden, literally Garden of Eden. In uh, Gan Eden, when you find it, tends to be a sense of uh, an afterlife, or at least an after this, mm -hmm. whatever that looks like. Whereas the world to come is different. The world to come is not necessarily a world that we get to live in. It's a world that hopefully we are helping to create. Uh, it's not necessarily a place that no longer has death, but it's a place that no longer has injustice. Hmm. Um, and actually one of the, one of the interesting turns within my tradition, within the reform Jewish world is there's this notion that the world to come uh, is always impossibly far away. Uh, that it's like uh, an asymptote, if you remember that from high school math, right? The, the curve that keeps approaching one but never hits it. Uh, or the same right. idea is, you know, if you always go halfway to the wall, you'll never actually touch the wall. Right. And so the notion here is that the world to come is actually itself a moving target. It is only valuable as long as it is close enough for you to imagine in far enough to be out of reach. Okay. So we might have an evil inclination within us, but God will take it away. Although, uh, that's really 
as likely as us actually ever banging into a wall. But since we do bang into walls, regardless of what math says, uh, God should be able to take it away, right? Yeah, and and so it becomes the dream. The dream of a world without it gives us something to strive towards. Yeah. So um, in Christianity, there is often this idea of grace that precludes human work or contribution. Uh, This is particularly big in the Reformation, a big thing of Martin Luther's drawing, of course, on Paul. So it's not like he invented it. Um, But this idea that works righteousness, as he would call it, is bad. Uh, and that the, the only true righteousness really comes from God. It's a gift of grace. Um, I uh, both agree with that and don't agree with that. Um, like I, I, I feel that there are things one can do to make one more open to grace than otherwise. Uh, and sometimes they're pretty simple things, really, like looking at stones and flowers you know, slowing down, paying attention to the world, to your life, mindfulness, as, as people call it now. Um, so, I mean, how did you think about that? Does your work matter if, like, the, the world is, or this world of, of pure righteousness or goodness or justice is always kind of a, a disappearing on the horizon? Does it matter what you do? You know, I... I find the notion of that sort of disappearing horizon of perfection, um, it's, it's what gives my work meaning. It lets me know the direction that I need to be working towards, even though I can never get there. Uh, there's a famous line from the Mishnah, uh, from the foundation of the Talmud, uh, that says that the, uh, the work is great, the master is demanding. Just because you may not complete the work does not allow you to give up on the process of trying. Uh, and that becomes sort of the, the metaphor writ large for at least how I understand my own faith in action in the world, which is an acknowledgement that I'm never going to fix this world. We are never going to fix this world. Uh, it doesn't matter what you and I do together. We, we are never going to fix it all. But it's so easy sometimes. God, I feel this way all the time when I open up the newspaper, Right. To just want to throw up your hands and say, enough, I can't fix it, I'm done. And this is a notion that says, no, it is the small things that you do, uh, that it is all we can do, and that this is not, perfection is coming not in our lives, but in a much wider, uh, much more distant view of the world. a world that has generations in mind rather than years in mind. Hmm. Does Judaism have any, any idea of what in Christianity, particularly Eastern Christianity would be called divinization? This idea that human beings can come so close to the divine that we are in effect merged with it. So you'll certainly find, uh, Jews in types of Judaism that, have that. Uh, and in fact, many of the Hasidic movements, the, the uh, um, uh, much more ecstatic movements within Judaism have been accused of essentially being pantheistic, of getting rid of monotheism, monotheism being the difference, you know, where there is me and there is God, and becoming pantheism, which is sort of the merging God is creation. Um, 
I don't know if that's where you're going with that. Um, yeah, it is. I mean, it's just something I've been thinking about lately as, as a big part actually of, uh, of one way of thinking through Christianity or, um, but maybe that's a conversation for another time. So, uh, do we have anything else to say about this chapter? I'm not sure. My do, do we have anything else to say about this chapter? I, I think I'm okay with closing the book uh, on it. No, I don't. That, that was repeating what you said. Um, let me ask you this. Yeah, let me ask you. Do we have anything else to say about this chapter? <laughs> uh, okay, <laughs> your listeners. <laughs> you just have that queued up. <laughs> I've been waiting all episode. It's been sitting there, my mouse on the drums button. There we go. All right, dear listeners. We are so thankful that you joined us for this very repetitive section. I, I hope you found it extravagant and delightful. Um, I, too, am glad that you joined us for this <laughs> section. Hope you found it extravagant and delightful. Ah, thank you. Uh, Lost in the Wilderness, uh, Priest and a Rabbi Explore Scripture is made possible hey. by a very generous donation or support from the Christchurch Cathedral in the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album, All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, Daniel, do you have anything you want to plug this week? No plugs. Okay. Uh, well, that was nice. Sounds uh, very thankful. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, I I don't really have any plugs either. I am with a broken foot. I am deeply bored. I have to say. So uh, this boring chapter really just kind of fits uh, the moment, the feeling. I I think we should go read it again. It's almost poetic in a way. We will not read it again. But listeners, you should listen to this podcast again. <laughs> All right, Daniel. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.